Hello, everyone. This is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 57 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. In this episode, I feature a recording from a workshop I did recently on product management for founders. It's roughly the first third of the workshop that I did at the Incepto Startup Incubator, which is also known as Karen Yang's house. Karen Yang is a Stanford grad student and entrepreneur, and she has several other entrepreneurs living in the house, and they're characterizing themselves as a startup incubator. They have a lot of stuff going on. This is all in Menlo Park, home of Stanford University, Facebook, the center of Silicon Valley, and you'll hear me refer to some of that stuff in the episode. Some of the attendees at the episode are doing Steve Blank's Lean Launchpad course, and I'll put a link to the page on the Stanford Technology Ventures site about the Lean Launchpad course at Stanford. The notes for this show, of course, are at alltheresponsibility.com slash 57. There's lots of other articles you can find about Steve Blank. Steve Blank has a great blog. I'll put a link to that as well and the course. I also talk about a company called Owlet. This was a couple of young guys who won a business model competition in 2014. They now have their baby monitor products for sale on Amazon. They were very successful in how they went about doing their MVP, their minimum viable product, and other things like that. And I'll put a link to a video of them presenting their business model. This was well before they had any product out back in 2014. Put a link to that video in the show notes. I also wanted to mention that Eric Reese, he is the author of the book, The Lean Startup. And I talk a lot in this episode about MVPs. And so I put a link to a video that's up on YouTube of Eric Reese talking about how a landing page can be an MVP. Sometimes there's some disagreement about whether a landing page is really an MVP, but he actually says, quote, despite all the work we did, all the learning was from 3% of the work we did right at the end, the crappy landing page. That was actually the minimum viable product, which I think is an important thing to remember when you're thinking about how hard or easy it is to build a minimum viable product and how much effort you should put into it. And one more thing before we get going, I wanted to mention that I will be speaking at Project Product on March 10th and 11th in Indianapolis. If you're in the Midwest, you might want to check that out. The conference is focused on bringing product marketing and product management together. should be pretty interesting. Check the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 57 for a link to the conference website page and a discount code. I'll also be giving a workshop directly following the end of the conference on March 11th, on mastering persuasion and influence, especially focused on the needs of product managers and product marketers. Check the show notes for the link to sign up. There's an early bird discount through February 18th. Again, these are both happening in Indianapolis. In the recording, you're going to hear me talking a lot, and then you're going to hear my alter ego, Nelzina, asking questions, because unfortunately the recording didn't capture some of the questions from the audience, so you'll probably notice that as we go along. But without any further ado, let's get started with this workshop. I think it was really fun to do, and I feel like the attendees enjoyed it and, and learned some stuff. And we have a Slack channel now that we continue to converse on and things like that. It was fun for me to do. I'm very interested in doing these kinds of workshops. If you're interested in doing one, let me know. And here we go. What I thought I would start with 
is this concept that I've started to say, there's always product management. What that means is somebody always is making a decision about what to build. That's the product, fundamental product management decision. That can be a good decision or a bad decision. And if you don't actually apply product management principles to it, it will likely be a bad decision. And if you also just apply partial product management principles to it, it will still be a bad decision. You know, and this is true if you're just a founder, if you're a founder, right? If you're a one-person company, you're a founder, three people who are found, who are finding, founding a company, you know, there's still product management, that decision still gets made. And it's it turns out it's really easy to make the wrong decision because it's really fun to build things. You guys all know this, right? It's fun to get to open the ID and start typing stuff in or say, oh, here's this cool technology, let me build something with it. The way that I talk about product management, going back to super basics, is that product management First of all, it's sort of too bad that the word product is in the name. Um, similar to, there's two other actual terms that we use a lot that are also problematic because they have the word product in the name. One is MVP, minimum viable product. That's problematic, and I'll tell, tell you why. Eventually down the road we'll get to that. And then there's also the product owner in Scrum, and that is a bad, that's a, also a bad name, and I'll tell you why that one is a bad name. But it's also, it's sort of the same reason that it's a bad name in product management. Because what we really are doing as product managers or people that are creating products is we're trying to solve problems that are in the world that need to be solved and aren't well solved. And it's very important that you get all that. One of them is it has to be a problem that exists. One of them is it has to be a problem that's worth solving, meaning somebody will pay you for a solution for it. And you have, you have to be able to give them a reason to choose your solution versus the other solutions that are out there. Now, it's easy to say this. People nod, sort of nod their head when you say this, but it's super easy and many, many companies fail because they don't do that. And that's actually what the whole Lean Launchpad is all about that you guys are doing, which is don't start writing code until you've validated there's a problem. And so th this is really good, but I think there's a lot of people that still forget that this is, this is what our goal is. And it also, and, it, and it's not just, is there really a problem, but is there a market? Can we sell it? Do we know how to reach the market? All of those things. So I divide product management into three, three big components. One of them is finding and validating a market problem. One of them is creating a solution to that problem that is differentiated. And one of them is taking the solution to market. So three, three big things, find the problem, create the solution, take it to market. Finding the problem is by far the most important. It's 10 times or 100 times more important than creating the solution. Going to market is probably 10 times more important than creating the solution. Creating the solution is the hardest in the sense of total effort involved, but it's wasted effort if you don't do the other two things. And this is true for whether you're building a product as a whole or whether you're building a feature that goes onto a product, right? There needs to be a problem that's your, that you're solving. Typically, if you're creating a feature in an existing product, it's not about beating a competitor, but it's about, is there another way to do this? Are we making it significantly better? Are we making our customers' lives significantly better or giving ourselves a differentiator by creating this solution, something like that, or creating this feature. That's the fundamental thing. So what's the, fun, what's the minimum effective dose of product management? Well, you don't need a product manager. You don't need a PRD. You don't need a backlog. You do have to have a problem that you validated needs solving and that it's worthwhile solving and that you can solve it. Feasibility is kind of important, but, you know, there's so many things that are feasible nowadays that, you know, for a lot of the things you guys are working on, you sort of are coming into it with, I have some technology that could do some stuff, meaning I think there's feasibility. Now let me find a problem to solve with it. So you need to have a problem that is worth solving. Of course, you need to create a solution. As I say, 
least important part of the whole process. And you need to be able to take the solution to market. And in fact, if you successfully find a problem that's worth solving, you can take it to market before you have the solution. This is what Kickstarter is, right? Kickstart, having a Kickstarter says, I've figured out this problem that exists. I'm going to use Kickstarter to reach the people that I think have this problem and see if they'll pay me to create the solution for it. I mean, a lot of times Kickstarters are, we've gotten par part of the way down the, the road, right? But some Kickstarters are just, is there actually a market out here for this solution? And if there is, I'll build it. That, to me, illustrates the importance of these three things. It would be very hard to, well, many companies fail by having solutions to problems that nobody cares about. That's historically very true. So that's the minimum viable dose, the minimum viable amount of product management. Having a problem, knowing how to get to market with your solution, and then, of course, some kind of solution. The other thing that I often tie this into is what I call my five questions that I ask for people when they have a product idea. So I say, I basically, it, it's very closely related, right? The first thing is, who is the product for, right? Who, you, here's this product idea, who is it for? And not, and not just a really generic thing, but here's a pe set of people that have a problem and their problem is unsolved, right? That's sort, sort of what I want to get, get at. So what problem does it solve for them, right? So it's, it's who it is. In order to get to market, you have to know who you're marketing to. You can't market to everybody. You have to have a segment. So you want to know who that is. You want to know what the problem is that they have that they can't solve right now. Although, typically, whenever if people actually have a problem in the real world, they're solving it in some way. So you have to understand that, too. You have to understand the solution. You have to understand what's wrong with that solution. So, for example, in a lot of business applications, they're using Excel. Excel is often not a great solution to, a, to many business problems. There's a lot of good things about Excel, and so you have to keep that in mind when you start to create your solution. But if they're spending eight hours a, eight hours a day or eight hours a week doing this thing with Excel, and you can take that down to one hour a day or one hour a week, that might be meaningful to them. Might not be, depends. Um, you have to validate that um, because it, they might not want to spend the money on it. Uh, but they might have also been out there trying to solve the problem better themselves. That's always a good indicator, right? So here's this thing that they're suffering from. They've tried to find a solution and failed. That's a great opportunity. You find a problem that people have that they suffer from and they complain about, but they don't do anything about it. That's not a good opportunity, most likely. So the, the fifth question really is then, why is your solution going to be better? And it has to typically be a lot better, like 10 times better. It's in some way, at any rate. It doesn't have to be 10 times better in all ways. Like if you look at project management tools, you guys have, are familiar with any project management tools like Asana and Trello and plan view and there's like there, there's a hundred million of them there's not a hundred million there's there's probably 300 500 different tools that are sort of for pro managing projects at one level or another there's probably 10 or 15 that are billion dollar companies roughly speaking in the half half a billion to a billion dollars they all essentially do the same thing right projects are a really well-known thing they all have tasks they have roadmaps they have gantt charts they have you know blah 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 resource management, things like that. But each of those offered something different than what else was out there. For some use case, they solved it better. And it might be that they could handle, you know, if, if you think about IT projects, there's a, an IT organization and a company, a big company, typically has thousands of, of projects going on at any given time. So if you think about using Microsoft Projects, project to manage thousands of projects, that's not going to work. Or Asana or Trello, right? Those aren't going to work. 
So you need something that can handle thousands of projects and roll all that up to a portfolio level and blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, if you're a little company and you have a handful of projects or you have a development project, well, one of those big ones, plan view, is not going to work. It's too big. It's overwhelming. It's not going to, it's just not worth buying. So you then you say, oh, well, Trello has this nice way of working that's kind of like Kanban. I think I will use that because it's easier for me to understand Kanban than it is for me to understand whatever the alternative is, right? Or if you look at Rike, which is another project, little project management tool, they know some things about design types of projects as opposed to development types of projects. So they focus on design and they, they market to designers, to gr designer groups, right? People that make you, that uh, do design with Photoshop and that kind of thing. If you're marketing to organizations that don't have project managers, because there's, there's actually a profession of project manager. There's a certification you can take. There's a bunch of training. There's actually multiple levels of certification. Um, and some tools are better for people that have that certification and are probably managing a lot more projects at a time. And some tools are better for people that don't have that and just need to get something done. Um, but there's not a big infrastructure around a project management organization. So um, and that's another example of who is it for? What is their, what is, what is their pain right now? And um, why, can we, why do we think there's already 300 project management software tools out there. Why are we building another one? What is the pain that's not addressed? Well, that, and it, what's interesting about this is that there are a ton of pains that are not addressed by project management tools related to project management. Um, there's actually this big, thick book called The Product Management Body of Knowledge, the PIMBOK. And it has all these things that you should do as a product manager, so many, many, many things. And if you compare the PIMBOK to what the functionality of all the, of the whole universe of project management tools, there's lots of empty space, which I think is fascinating. There's reasons for it. This is another side effect. If you're, if you're building enterprise software, and this is not so much true, I think you guys are coming at it from a slightly different place, but for a long time, new startups came from this place of, oh, I understand, we have this relational database capability, we can easily put a UI on it, make it multi-user, things like that. And so people looked at what people what companies did in spreadsheets and said, oh, I can automate that. I can make it multi-user. I can have a single system of record. Because there's a lot of problems with using spreadsheets to manage business processes. They get out of sync. Everybody has different version. Nobody can kind of agree. And there's a bunch of sort of semantical stuff that's hard to do in a spreadsheet. So people said, oh, I'm just going to put that spreadsheet into a database, and that's going to be a lot better. And it is better on a couple dimensions, right? It's single, it's multi-user, and it's a single system of record. And I call that the spreadsheet fallacy, right? That's the, that's the spreadsheet way of creating an application. But what they don't do, or often didn't do, and, it, and you can see this throughout the world of project management tools, because they're all basically just fancy spreadsheets. They didn't say, oh, well, what problems are these project managers facing that they're doing outside a spreadsheet? that maybe they're doing in a Word doc or they're doing in Google Docs or they're doing it in PowerPoint just to use the Microsoft tools, right? Or that they can't do it all or that they're really frustrated that it takes them hundreds of hours to do and that it should take them minutes. And often that question's not asked. And that's all that stuff in the PMBOK that I mentioned that's not automated yet. Just as an example, starting a new project, the process of initiating a project. There's a bunch of stuff you have to do. You have to build the team. You have to do the charter, all these things typically done in Word, not done in a spreadsheet. Most of these tools don't support that very well. So this is good information about finding the market problem. We supposedly know this already, though. What do we have to be careful of as entrepreneurs, especially around here? Most entrepreneurs, at least 
the ones that sort of are around here, they have really strong technical chops. And they learned a bunch of cool stuff that can do amazing things. And so they say, I want to build a tool. I want to build a product using all this stuff I know that's technical. And so they start to think, well, this sounds like it would be important. You know, they think, I think I have an idea. <laughs> I have an idea. I'll build X, right? And X, there's a minimum, there's a small chance that X is a good idea, but it's more likely that X is not a good idea and that nobody cares about X in the real world, right? We, the people in this room, the people pretty much in this neighborhood and within 30 miles of where we sit today, we have a really different perspective on technology than, than normal people. Although all of us are normal in some sense, right? But our, our view on technology is that it's cool, that we're always interested in it, that we want to hear about the new thing that's happening. Normal people don't have that attitude to technology. And, and again, I'm saying normal in the sense of trying to get my job done, you know, things like that. In trying to get my job done, there's things that I would like to, I would that are painful for me that I would like to have automated, but they may not require machine learning. You know, they may not require anything but somebody to think outside the box of a spreadsheet approach to creating a business application. That's that's why Lean Start Lean Launchpad exists, right? Because Steve saw this issue and had suffered from it himself, right? When he was at, if if you've read the the books. Right, you know, he had this product that he was taking out to customers, and they didn't care about it. And he started to ask them, "Well, what do you really care about?" And it turned out that the technology he had could solve the things that they cared about, but he wasn't talking about that, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that was lucky, in that sense, right? It was a technology that could actually apply to an uh, existing problem. But lots of people create technologies that don't, in reality, apply to a problem that anybody cares about. So, what should we do as entrepreneurs? I mean, you guys are taking the right steps, right? Which is to do the Lean Launchpad and to do your MVPs and things. And that's what, you know, that's what Steve, Steve Blank is trying to do. He's trying to make that transformation. Eric Reese is trying to make that transformation. I'm trying to make that transformation. But I took this training the other day uh, from a very well-known product management training organization. This was not the big thing that they talked about. They talked about it, but not, and I'm sure that they talk about it more than they did in terms of doing product discovery and that sort of thing, but it, but not as much as I think they should. And, and also not going back to first principles, which is that it's all about a problem that is unsolved today or, that, or badly solved. How do I choose what to build after I've done some of this customer discovery? Ah, so that's a, that's a really interesting question. What's the most, what, how to choose what to build? I mean, so you found a problem, you found that there's a, a space where there's not a good solution to the problem. You, you can build a solution. Or, or there's probably multiple little problems you found, right? Um, and then how do you choose which one to build? First of all, you're way ahead of a lot of your competitors, a lot of other people building stuff because you have found an actual problem. But what should I build? What's the product? Well, you don't have to build much of anything. Build a landing page. One of the things about the MVP, so let's talk about the MVP for just briefly, and then I'll talk about my suggestion on this. So MVP, minimum viable product. The problem with the name is product because product sounds like something you're gonna sell. And that's a bad way to think about a minimum viable product. I have said that the way to think about the minimum viable product is actually as um, a test or an experiment against a hypothesis you have. And so you have now your hypothesis or your hypotheses about, we think there is a problem here that people are willing to pay for a solution for. And so what, what do you, what's a way to test that? Well, you advertise the solution, you drive that 
you drive traffic to a landing page and you see if people will give you their email address to learn when you have it out. That's, that was an example that Eric Reese used in one of his talks at Stanford about MVPs. He, it was a talk about lean startup, but that was his ex, an example of an MVP, right? That's a very inexpensive thing to do, of course, build a landing page. You could also do what they did in this Owlet example. So I'd recommend finding this Owlet uh, presentation. They did that, but they also did another experiment later when they were a little further along and they said, this is going to cost X amount of money, pay now and you'll be one of the charter members. So in other words, no solution. They had not built anything. They'd only built landing pages at this point. And they had people pay. And then they would refund them. This is, I mean, you don't even have to refund them, but you, but you know, you can use that as a test to see, do people, are people really going to be willing to spend money on this? If it's an enterprise, if it's an enterprise application, that might not work, right? You might have to do something else, but you can, there's different other things. So I'm not the expert in all the different ways of doing an MVP. The goal should be to not write code. Certainly until you have validated that people are going to, are willing, that there's some people that are willing to pay. And another, a, a good way to do that, if it's enterprise stuff, is to say, what have you tried already, and have they spent any money to try to solve the problem? Or are they currently suffering through some really painful thing to solve the problem? That's often an indicator that they might be willing to pay. I mean, certainly if they tried to find a solution or tried to build a solution. So that's, that's the first thing that I would always look for. Have they tried to build a solution? Because that's an indicator that, that they think it's, because building things costs, is expensive. What if the customer tried to build a solution and it failed? Isn't that a bad sign? No, it's awesome. Because <laughs> that's actually one of the best things. Unless they tried to do the exact same thing that you're going to do with the same technology, presumably they failed because they couldn't put enough effort into it, they didn't have the right technology, they weren't as smart as you. You know, smart in quotes, meaning they know th you know things that they don't about how to, salt, how to do things. Um, you want them to have failed. Because if they didn't fail, then they don't have the problem anymore, they've solved it. What if they built a solution and it worked? What then? It's still a good sign. If they, either way, if, they've, if, some, if some of your informants have actually built their own solution, um, but others haven't, or others have tried and failed, and some ha just haven't, that's still fine. That's, that's a good signal. The people that already built their solution, you can still learn things from them. Like, what were the, what, oh, well, what were your big challenges when you were building that? And uh, why did you ch decide to build it instead of buying something off the shelf, right? Those are really great questions. Same for the people that failed, right? They chose to build it because presumably they couldn't find a commercial solution. Did you look for a commercial solution? Which ones did you evaluate? What was wrong with them? Those are things you need to know. One of the things you validate about your product idea, the problem that you find, and the way you validate that it's worth solving is people have tried to find a solution and that the existing solutions aren't adequate. So you may think, going back to the project management example, I'm going to build a project management solution, and I'm going to go, I've talked to a bunch of project managers, and they say that retrospectives are a problem. We don't have a tool for retrospective. You have to find out if that's actually important to them, if they care. And if they do care, then you say, well, what, did, what do you do about that? And somebody I, I actually had this experience. I worked for a project management software company. Somebody said, well, we tried to build one, and it didn't go very well. And to me, that was like, oh, that means we should definitely do it. We didn't do it, unfortunately, but that's a whole other story. That is a really strong signal that there's a, there's a need. That was one data point, but having an, an actual conversation with a real person who says that thing, who's, who's normal in other ways, I mean, who's, who's like, 
right in the middle of your target market, that's, um, that's a really good sign. This would have been a feature adding onto an existing product that, that this person used and some other people, and you know, many other people used. Well, we found a few people to do market discovery with. What are the best ways to find more informants? You can say, who else? You can say to that person, who else do you know who I should talk to about this? You can say uh, something about, well, you know, I, I build my business based on relationships with interesting people. Who have you met recently who might, who's, who you, with whom you've had a conversation about this? If you have them on LinkedIn, you know, you can use, um, you can say, oh, I see that you are connected to this other person on LinkedIn who does the same thing as you. Can you make an introduction? Those are just some really simple, obvious examples. You can also use LinkedIn to just to in-mail people, right? That costs money, but not that much. If they respond, it turns out you get the credit back. This is how, I think that's how that works. And if you want to do that, then you, it probably pays to read some blog posts about how to reach out to people on LinkedIn, <laughs> as opposed to talking to me, because that's not, as I said, it's not my area of expertise. You know, depending on what you're working on, there's Facebook groups, there's LinkedIn groups, there's all these different places. And again, it, it really depends on the segment that you're talking to. If you're talking to normal, you know, sort of consumers, go to the mall. Teresa Torres, she is a great person on customer discovery. So she has a blog and a bunch of trainings and stuff. She talks about going with some, some teams in Detroit who worked in the motor, motor vehicle industry. And they went to the local mall and they just started people asking, asking people about their opinions about cars to talk, you know, basically open-ended questions about cars. And they got a bunch of good information. I'm sure you've experienced this. You don't get a lot of information per conversation typically. It's going to be lots of conversations that you're going to have to aggregate in your head or with some tools to figure out what is the, what is the, the signal here. It's a weak each, in, each individual conversation is sort of a weak signal or part of a, potentially part of a weak signal. And you want to try to figure out how to build that signal up across multiple conversations. If you get a strong signal in a conversation, that's really great. And that often is very meaningful. You do have to test it. More likely you're going to get some weak signals and you're going to learn, somebody's going to say something and you're going to say, oh, that seems like it might be interesting. On the, the, and the next person you talk to, you say, what do you think about this thing? Again, using open-ended questions. You, you kind of want these guys, these conversations to build on each other. To some degree, you may, have, you may want to have the same conversation multiple times just to get a baseline, but then you're going to start building on things you learn. Okay, so how do I validate that the thing I think I've learned is actually true? Good question. The, the way you do that is with an MVP or with MVPs. So you may, be, you may have thought, well, I think I detected a strong signal here in this set of five conversations or whatever. Let me test that. And one way to test that is to go to somebody else, ask them, are they suffering from this problem? What have they done about it? Is it, worth, is it something that's, that's high, highly imp that's important to them? Do they have a budget for solving it? Things like that. So it's, it's, all, it's all just asking, asking, asking. Um, but you'd ask different questions at different stages. Or you could build an MVP. That would be another thing. If you say, oh, I've talked to 10 people. It seems like there's this interest in this particular thing. Then you create a Google AdWords campaign, drive it to a landing page, and see if anybody goes there. And if they give you your, their email address. You know, an email address is a way of, is a, is a, um, it's a form of currency. And so your goal is to see are people willing to spend something on this idea or on the solution and 
when you don't actually have anything and can't really tell them anything, an email address may be as much currency as you're going to get. So that was the first part of the product management for founders workshop I did at Karen Yang's Incepto Startup Incubator in Menlo Park. I may release more of the conversation as future podcast episodes and let me know if you think that would be great. I mentioned a number of books and articles and concepts in the talk, and you can find links to all of those in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 57. I'd love to hear your feedback on the episode. You can drop me a line at nils at nilsdavis.com or leave a comment on the show notes with your thoughts. Please consider rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts. And until the next episode, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye. Ignition.